Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, how get 30, how get 20, 20, 20, how get 20, 20, how get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Like it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This week we'll be finding out how a fossilized animal walked. And hearing about a potential role for the so-called junk DNA within genes. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. Somewhere around the late Devonian era, perhaps 360 million years ago, vertebrates started to invade the land dragging themselves out of the water and expanding into pastures new. The first land invaders were likely to be pretty hopeless at moving about on land, but as time went on, terrestrial creatures would evolve, developing ever more sophisticated mechanisms for getting about. But what did that evolutionary journey look like, and how can we know? We may be able to see fossils of creatures which were present at the time, but there is a big difference between a pile of bones and a moving animal. Now, a team led by John Niakatura from Humboldt University in Berlin has used a host of techniques to try and work out how a crocodile-like creature from about 280 million years ago might have moved, in the hopes of better understanding the great transition to land. Noah Baker called him up to find out more. Tell me about the animal that you've been studying in this particular paper. We have been studying Orobates papsti from the lower Permian, about 300 million years old. And it's a beautifully preserved fossil, complete and articulated. And moreover, there's fossil trackways which have been assigned to Orobates from the same fossil locality, which is very rare. What was your approach to work out how this creature might have moved? What was the first step, I suppose? We used a highly multidisciplinary approach. First, we were interested in how modern animals use sprawling tetrapod locomotion. So we studied four modern species, extant species, which were quite different in terms of their morphology or anatomy and also in, in terms of their ecology and in terms of their position within the tree of life. So we studied salamanders, the blue-tongued skink, green iguanas, which live in trees actually, and then we studied 
spectacled caimans, which are much closer to the water. By studying these very um, different modern animals, we were able to identify general principles of their biomechanics of locomotion. And we assumed that if animals today, which were so diverse, have these general principles, that these general principles also apply to the fossil. So we used this information as a guideline for our simulation study. So you started off by looking at these extant animals and you developed these sort of four key parameters. And then you wanted to look at how the Ourobates itself would fit in. And to do that, you needed to get an understanding of what that skeleton looked like digitally. Tell me what you did there. Yeah, so uh, we used highly precise computed tomography scans to first scan the original fossil and then uh, derive a digital three-dimensional skeleton from it. And then from that digital skeleton, you can start looking at the way that the bones might have moved, the sort of range of motion of the joints. Right. The range of motion of joints is is, is one thing, but it does not um, restrict the movements very much. If you uh, just think about... um, So some people are able to do um, a split, right, with their legs, but during normal locomotion, they don't do the split. So usually the range of motion in the joints does not constrain the actual locomotion very much. So the trackways are much more helpful in this regard. And therefore, we forced our animated skeleton to move within these trackways and according to the general principles of um, sprawling tetrapod locomotion that we observed in the modern animals. Okay, so you can animate your digital skeleton to walk inside the trackways, these sort of fossilised footprints, and then you can use the information you've learned from extant species to further narrow down various parameters of the walking, like precision or power or balance. But then you still wanted to go one step further, and that's to prove the kind of theories you come up with from your simulation in the real world. Tell me, what did you do there? Yeah, so simulation is one thing, but to actually prove it in the real world is a different thing. So the first thing we did is build a robot that actually is able to do all the movements that we also simulated. And of course, you know, there's friction, there's gravity, there's lots of things that act on on the locomotion of a physical robot. And we wanted to show that the reconstructed gates that we found or um, that we find likely can be produced by the robot. And then we checked whether the robot produced the trackways that we can also find in the fossil record. And by this, we tested our hypotheses a bit about these fossil trackways and the track maker. Okay, so bringing all of those many different methods together, tell me, did you come up with an answer? How do you think Orobates might have walked? It's very likely that Orobates already had what we termed advanced locomotion. So it was probably lifting its body off the ground quite a bit. It was fairly energy conservative in terms of its locomotion. And in many ways, what we found for Orobates resembled what we also found in during the locomotion of the spectacled caiman. And do you know what this sort of more upright gait might mean for Orobates in terms of how it lived? The way to interpret it is not that easy, um, but it suggests that Orobates probably was quite independent from water. It had a quite 
effective locomotion on land, and this is something that in modern species we usually don't see in amphibians. That was John Niakatora speaking with Noah Baker. You can see the Oribati simulation and its robotic counterpart in action in a video on our YouTube channel. Check it out at youtube.com slash nature video channel. Coming up in the show, we'll be hearing all about a shake-up of science funding in Serbia. That's in the news chat. Up next, Anna Nagel is here with this week's research highlights. New Caledonian crows have a reputation for being very brainy birds, especially when it comes to making tools. But now scientists have shown that these crafty crows can also make smart deductions by observing the world around them. The researchers trained one group of crows to fetch heavy objects and another group to fetch light objects to earn a reward. The scientists then suspended unfamiliar objects in front of a fan so the birds could see how they responded when buffeted by a breeze. Despite not having a chance to investigate the mystery objects any further, the birds correctly selected the right object, heavy or light, 73% of the time. The research suggests that the crows are able to learn about an object's properties purely by observing it, rather than experiencing it directly. Weigh up that research in Proceedings of the Royal Society B. A supernova usually marks the death of a star. These enormous explosions are often a single burst that lasts a few months before fading away. But in 2017, astronomers announced the discovery of a rare supernova that continued to shine for more than 600 days. Using data from ground and space-based telescopes, scientists have now reported that the exploding star's light finally faded after 1,000 days, around 10 times longer than your average supernova. The light from the explosion also trailed off steeply, which doesn't match most explanations of the star's strange behaviour. However, the researchers say the signature of sulphur found in the supernova's light might help narrow down possible explanations. Head over to Astronomy and Astrophysics for more of that illuminating research. Our next story is about the large proportion of DNA in our bodies that, for a long time, was considered just junk. But the more scientists understand about so-called junk DNA, the more functions and purposes they find. Here's Ali Jennings to tell us more. We carry around in most cells of our body some 3 billion nucleotides, the A's, T's, G's and C's, that make up our DNA. Some of this DNA codes for genes, but biologists still don't know what much of the rest of DNA actually does, if it does anything at all. This kind of mysterious non-coding DNA crops up all over our genome, It can even be found scattered within genes, breaking up their coding sequence. These stretches of gene-interrupting, non-coding DNA are called introns. When a gene is required, its DNA is transcribed into RNA, which contains these non-coding introns. In most cases, the introns then have to be cut out, after which the coding RNA is stuck back together. This process is called splicing. After they've been spliced out, the introns have no function and are left to degrade. Or so we thought. 
Here's David Bartel from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology in the U.S. David and his team examined introns in single-celled yeast by sequencing their RNA. So what we found was that whereas many of the introns in yeast are rapidly degraded, uh, there are some conditions in which these introns stick around and are stabilized. But these stabilized introns weren't sticking around all the time. These introns that were accumulating were not accumulating, you know, when the cells were happily growing and doubling every few hours. Uh, they would only accumulate when cells were under long-term stress. David and his team set about finding out why introns accumulated when the yeast cells were under stressful conditions. But meanwhile, another team from the University of Sherbrooke in Canada were also discovering that introns were playing a role in yeast cell survival. Here's Sharif Abuelela, who led the second group's research. So we have deleted every one of the 290 or so intron in, uh, in yeast and then start looking at their effect one by one. So basically what we have found in a normal condition, introns are not required, but when uh, we delete them, we're having a major effect when nutrients are deplete or when the cells start uh, to starve. Independently, Sharif's and David's teams had both discovered that introns are important for yeast survival under testing conditions. And David thinks he knows why. So the introns, they're not just stabilized alone in the cell, just floating around as a naked RNA. Instead, they're part of a complex. And this, this complex contains uh, some of the machinery that was used to splice the introns out of the RNA. These stable introns are sort of tying up uh, some of the splicing machinery, preventing that machinery from working on other RNA. And in doing so, uh, that is helping to slow down the growth of, of the cells. When nutrients are limited, slowing down growth helps yeast cells to save precious resources, increasing their chances of survival. Both David and Sharif think introns allow a cell to do this by tying up their splicing machinery. This limits the resources spent on production of mature RNA and protein. But whereas David thinks that this happens after the introns have been cut out, Sharif thinks that introns impact splicing whilst they're still part of the initially transcribed RNA. Such previously unreported functions of introns would be big news in the world of biology. But both Sharif's and David's studies have worked in yeast cells. Could this process be happening in human cells too? David's not sure, but Sharif is optimistic. So the kind of the element, the players, if you like, uh, for this mechanism do exist. So we expect that uh, the essence of what we discovered will also happen in human. What is really need to, uh, to be seen is whether or not the splicing equilibrium in a very complex organism would actually be as sensitive to a change or a deletion of a single intron. I think that if there is a lot of this happening in, in human cells, that uh, it would have been seen. And so if there is some use for stable introns in human cells, then it's probably happening in conditions that are very unusual, that haven't been looked at carefully yet. 
In these two papers, published back-to-back in this issue of Nature, Sharif and David's teams have reported a new role for introns in yeast cell survival. But it remains to be seen if this mechanism is found in other organisms, and if so, whether it plays an important role. That was Ali Jennings talking to David Bartel and Sharif Abu Elela. You can read both of their papers over at nature.com forward slash nature. And you can see a video all about introns featuring old-fashioned cassette tapes over at youtube.com forward slash nature video channel. Intrigued? Go and check it out. Finally then, it's time for the news chat. And making his debut is Micho Tatalovic, news editor here at Nature. Micho, hi. Hello. We're going to head to Serbia today for our first story, and we're going to talk about research funding. Now, maybe for those people who don't know about the sort of state of research funding in Serbia, could you maybe explain it a little bit? Yeah, sure. So Serbia is a small country in Eastern Europe. It's not especially rich, so they don't have a huge amount of funding for research. I think the government funding is uh, in the range of 100 million euros a year. One of the biggest problems for uh, researchers there is that the government hasn't launched a call for research uh, grants in uh, almost 10 years. 10 years. I mean, here in the UK, we imagine sort of a, you'd apply for a grant maybe every three or, or four years. What, why, why the difference there? Yeah, so I think that was the idea there as well. But what happened was uh, that last time they tried launching a grant call, which was 2016, uh, researchers complained because they kind of felt that there wasn't enough money for research. And also there was like a snap government election and science was kind of, I guess, uh, set aside and uh, they never came back to making those calls. So in effect, most scientists in Serbia have been working on uh, uh, with the same uh, research proposals that they've uh, drafted like 10 years ago. And obviously, science has moved on since. Well, quite. I mean, I'm sure new fields of science exist now that maybe didn't, you know, a few years ago. But are things about to change, Micho, and how so? Yeah, so the government has uh, is proposing several uh, or a couple of laws on science. One of them has already been passed in the parliament, and the idea is to set up a national research fund. And hopefully the expectation is that this fund will then launch the first calls in 10 years. So scientists are awaiting for this call, you know, but awaiting it with mixed feelings because they don't know the details and they don't know how much money uh, will be in that new fund. I mean, big question, I suppose, for me here is where is this money going to come from? So the government says they're going to uh, increase funding themselves and they have some funding from the World Bank and from the EU. So Serbia is one of the countries that wants to get into the European Union and the EU has funds for supporting uh, things like science in those countries. But in the long run, Serbian government wants a lot of the funding to come from the private sector. I mean, you say maybe mixed feelings among researchers in the country. I mean, more money seems like a good news story. Well, why the discrepancy there? Part of the reason is that scientists just don't seem to believe the government. So they say we've heard these promises before, right? So they're kind of really waiting to see whether these promises come true before they can kind of really trust the government. And uh, even the science ministry admits that this is true. They are kind of aware and they say that they're hoping to rebuild that trust. So we'll see if, if that happens or not. And how long will the researchers have to wait to find out then? So I think they're expecting these new calls for research grants sometime in the mid to late 2019, so another few months at least. And what will happen in the meantime is that the government will be passing another law which will regulate how uh, salaries are paid out. So until now in Serbia, a lot of scientists had to have a research grant in order to get a salary because they would get salary out of the grant. And the idea now is that they won't have to do that, so they'll get salary automatically. So that could be good news for some, but not for all of them. And some people are saying that uh, some researchers who work at the university faculties 
will be affected negatively by this law because for them, it won't mean an automatic salary. It will mean no salary at all. So they might actually lose their jobs or they might have to find different jobs. Okay, right. So potentially, you know, fairly wholesale changes. Uh, Is this going to be evaluated in, in sort of in the medium term to see how well it's worked? Uh, There's no sense at the moment that it will be evaluated. What the government is doing, they're kind of putting these proposals to the public uh, debate and they're saying that they are listening to what the community is telling them. So hopefully they will incorporate some of these changes to improve things. Uh, But it's not clear whether and how this will work and whether they will evaluate it or not. Well, let's move on to our second story, Micho. And this is about crowdfunding, getting people online to donate money to a particular project. Now, I've crowdfunded a few projects myself, re-release LPs of video game soundtracks, so I'm aware of the process, but I didn't know that this was a method being used to fund science. Oh, yeah, definitely. So there's several sites uh, that facilitate this. So they allow scientists to come to these websites, explain their projects and get some money. Uh, And one of the biggest such websites is uh, something called experiment.com, which is based in the US. And they have something like, well, I think over a thousand active projects there as we speak. And uh, scientists are getting uh, some money that way. It's not huge amounts of money. Uh, but, you know, it's it's within the range of a few thousand dollars. Well, do we know what sort of researchers are using these systems to, to get this funding? So, you know, there's a new study that looked into that, who gets the funding and how much they get. And you would maybe expect that, you know, more senior scientists, professors would get most funding. But actually, they found that students are getting more money than uh, more senior scientists. Another interesting thing is that, you know, traditionally, when you're applying for a funding grant, you would want to list your research publications to show that you're a good scientist. But here they found that it didn't matter whether you listed your publications or not. Oh, right. So maybe then this is a bit more of a sort of a popularity contest. Is this because people are uh, putting forward proposals that are that tend to grab people's attentions? And, and dare I say, are young people more used to kind of uh, social media and, and interneting than, uh, than more senior scientists? Possibly, yeah. I mean, the study finds that crowdfunding research flips uh, science's traditional reward model. Um, so, you know, it's not the people you would expect to get funding that get the funding, but the, the study didn't really kind of analyze or find why this is so, right? So the researchers say it could be that maybe younger scientists are just more, you know, savvy on social media, but they haven't really looked into that. So they, they can't know for sure why it's happening. One thing that gets me about this, Micho, is, is the system as a whole. So I've mentioned that I've done some sort of crowdfunding projects and I got a tangible thing at the end. With science, this is, this is kind of different, right? It can be years before you see uh, a, a result, if you see a result at all. Have, have the, uh, the people behind this study looked at that? So uh, they haven't analyzed that yet. Some of these uh, proposals definitely do get funded. In our story, we mentioned one scientist who has done crowdfunding campaign before in 2012, and he actually managed to uh, get some like $350,000 through this with his team, and they've launched this whole project. They even had a spin-off company later on from that. So, I mean, some scientists are having real-world effects with this crowdfunding projects. What some of the scientists are saying, though, is that the real interest in crowdfunding is that basically they're free. There's no bureaucracy that comes with uh, traditional research funds. Well, Micho, thank you so much for joining us. Listeners, as always, head over to nature.com slash news to read even more about these stories. That's it for this week's show, but we've got a few things to highlight before we go. Yeah, that's right. If you're a fan of science podcasts, and I sincerely hope that you are, then we've an article in our career section about making your own. Head over to nature.com slash careers to have a read of that. And don't forget to give those videos about the fossil robot and the junk DNA stories a watch. 
They're on our YouTube channel, where you'll also find one about how to help pollinating insects in our cities. I'm Charlotte Stoddart. And I'm Benjamin Thompson. See you all next time. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Want flexibility? Take yoga. Want flexibility with your health insurance? Check out United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly medical, dental, and vision coverage that may be right for you. More at uh1.com.